And I'm Rob Olson. Tonight we're bringing you the first in a four-part series of, of readings from The Wrong Kind of Reading, which took place at the Galway Arms in Chicago during the AWP conference. Uh, the Galway Arms is a pretty cool place. Um, we had the second floor all to ourselves. Um, it was a huge, huge turnout. And um, quality-wise, I mean, from a sound quality-wise, this might be the best you're getting because we kind of had it all to ourselves. Yeah, it was pretty cool. Um, great space, great list of people reading it was it was um you know it's one of those things where we really hadn't gone i think it was well i mean obviously it was the second reading we'd really ever attended together as the podcast so you don't know what to expect too much but you, i really honestly don't think we could have asked for kind of a better series of circumstances for that night it was really cool and there was a very flaccid microphone you're going to hear a lot about uh, throughout the <laughs> course of the evening so we'll uh, we'll warn you uh, about that right now that was the i think the only thing that went wrong with that was the microphone just wouldn't you know they had like a bendy microphone so you could bend it to whatever height you wanted but it just wanted to point right at the ground so it was a little challenging for some of the readers so you'll hear some that use the mic some that don't use the mic you'll hear kind of some jokes that probably don't make a lot of sense without the visual but um picture a flaccid microphone when you're hearing those parts yep so this event was kind of uh uh, thrown together, I believe, primarily by Anthony Neal Smith, and he had asked Jed Ayers to be the MC for the event. So Jed's going to be doing a little introduction at the beginning and then throughout kind of bringing up the next reader and stuff like that throughout our little four-part series here. Um, Jed, awesome guy. We just had a bunch of him on for uh, for what we did, the Noir at the Bar readings that you that you know we did last week. And uh, he's, he's a great MC. I think he does – he's got this natural kind of awkward – charmingness charm charm <laughs> I, right? I guess you could call it charm yeah where yeah everybody really enjoys seeing him talk but at the same time he gets a little weird up there so i don't know i like i like i like his style yeah and we're gonna hear from him first which is really nice because at this point i mean we hadn't heard personally from jet airs for like 48 hours so we were kind of feeling <laughs> a little jittery but it was nice to nice to have him back and he is going to uh kind of introduce the reading here and then he's going to uh, kick it right into uh, Nikki Dolson, the first reader. Um, I'm not sure that there's an actual title for the story. I believe it's uh, the Viagra story. Or that's what we're going to call it, at least. Nikki Dolson is a fiction major at Columbia College in Chicago, and her fiction has appeared in Spine Tingler Magazine and the Red Rock Review. And she has what's likely the sexiest story you'll hear tonight, depending on, you know, what you find sexy, I guess. Yeah, um, this won't really make sense, but I think that <laughs> once you get to episode two, um, or, or once you get to part two of our wrong kind of reading series, I think David James Keaton kind of took her story as a challenge. Oh, um, yeah, very good. Yeah. yeah, a little bit. But uh, right after Nikki for this episode, you're going to be hearing John Weagley, who uh, I think is a personal friend of uh, Anthony Neal Smith, who helped to do a lot of the actual arrangement with the Galway Arms to make this thing happen, and he reads a story of his. John is the author of The Undertow of Small Time Dreams, a collection of short stories. And uh, at the beginning of, and you'll hear it, but at the beginning of uh, of his reading, he talks a lot about this um, dyslexia... Awareness? Awareness, program? yeah, some sort of cause. You'll, you'll hear it, but he talks about this dyslexia, dyslexia cause that he, he's passionate about, and it involves him speaking in a very interesting way <laughs> but 
anyway, uh, the the story he reads is the resurrection at Hassan Pepper Field, which is, um, as Livius puts it so succinctly in our notes, a story about bunnies. And here we go, guys. Jed Ayers followed by Nikki Delson. And John Weagley. How's it going tonight? Welcome to Op. We got, uh, I know everybody's settling in and uh, still more people coming, but uh, you know, a bunch of readers tonight, so I'm going to go ahead and, and, and get things started. Uh, my name is Jedediah Ayers. I came in here from St. Louis. They wouldn't let me into the conference because I graduated high school in Arkansas, and um, that's apparently a thing. But um, I'm super excited to be here with so many writers that I really enjoy and so many that I pretend to enjoy when they're around and um, they buy me drinks. Uh, but uh, thanks for coming out and I'm gonna go ahead and get to having people come up. This mic is really kind of disturbingly flaccid. And I don't know, please forgive any of the readers. Four hours. <laughs> it's uh, you know, it was it was ready to go a while ago, but uh, I've got a cheat sheet. We got seven readers tonight: uh, Seth Harwood, David James Keaton, John Wegley, Nikki Fingers Dilson, Anthony Neil Smith, Kyle Miner, and Pinkney Benedict will give you some really fantastic, uh, pulpy stuff that you're not going to find uh, at dull, stuffy book events. So um, I'm going to introduce Nikki Dolson, who I just met this evening, and I can tell you is by far the hottest of the readers this evening. Um, Nikki Fingers Dolson is a student of Columbia College in Chicago. Her writing has appeared or is forthcoming in Story Glossia and Northville Review. If any wallets come up missing this evening, she swears it was Neil. So, Nikki Dolson. Coffee, and this time she wants him bad. 
So Mark calls off his meetings and heads to the closest hotel he can find, and they go up in the elevator, kissing and making out like they're 16 again. It's all hot and heavy. When they get in the room, the woman of his adolescent dream starts taking her clothes off, real seductive-like. She gets down to her heels and bra and panties. Then this woman goes into her purse and pulls out a little blue pill. She's got Viagra in her purse as if it's aspirin. Who does this? Anyway, she gives this to my buddy and says, and I'm not kidding you here, this is actually what she said. You've got a decision to make, Mark. Here's what you need to know. First, I love to fuck on this shit. Second, we can fuck all night. Third, we can do it any way you want. A, up against the window, leave my ass print on the glass. Or B, in the shower, fingers and soap in places you've never seen on your own body. Or D, excuse me, C, <laughs> on the bed with your hand around my throat. Or D, all of the fucking above. He picks D, of course, because who could refuse an opportunity to have sex with your dream girl? So Mark pops the pill in his mouth and proceeds to fuck like he's never fucked before. He feels like a sex god. He's never been so hard, never before has he made a woman scream quite like that. She's insane in the sack, kissing, biting, and clawing at him. However, after she's rubbed raw from hours of ceaseless sex, from the friction of body against body, my buddy discovers a few things. One, his cock is still hard. Two, it's starting to hurt. Three, that after jacking off, and four, after a very long cold shower, and five, after jacking off more, that six, his cock is still hard and now hurts in a new and amazing way. Then his adolescent dream, seeing that this is a problem for professionals, helps him get him dressed and drives him to the nearest emergency room. Because his pride can't bear to have her there with him, he waits alone for a medical professional. Did I mention he's in pain? Mark, good guy that he is, tries not to make a scene in the hour. He's sweating and nearly in tears, sitting in a chair in the corner of the room. His coat is draped over his lap, and with every breath, the pain increases, throbbing, radiating pain. And there's this pressure, too. Diamonds are being made in his urethra. He's, he's terrified of what his cock looks like after what feels like hours of pain. He imagines his cock as a dangerous, swollen, purple thing, ready to explode or maybe detach from his body and run wild among the legs of the other patients before being put down like a dog with rabies. <laughs> Finally, they call his name, and Mark limps behind the triage nurse who shows him to his curtained room. He tries to get up on the gurney. He eases an ass cheek on the bed, but that only causes his pants to tighten across his groin which in turn makes him whimper. He tries to sit on the little stool next to the bed, but that's just a different kind of awful. In the end, my buddy takes a deep breath and hops up on the bed, biting back a scream. He leans back and waits for some kind of release. Death, maybe. Mark's release comes in the form of a nurse with the palest blue eyes and the blondest blonde hair he's ever seen. 
He's got an erection tinting his suit pants as tall and as hard as the Sears Tower and the steel girders that support it. He swears he can feel every metal tooth of the zipper on his pants. He thinks he's dying, and there he is in front of Heidi. Like from the book, you know? She's in a, she's in a, even has her hair in these two long braids with white ribbons at the ends. Mark explains his problem with as little eye contact as possible, and Nurse Heidi goes to get the doctor. The doctor comes in, a very nice old guy who pats my buddy on the shoulder while telling him to never do this again, young man, because Viagra is not for young men, it is for old men. Nurse Heidi shows back up, Mark's there squirming on the table. She has him change into one of those gowns and tells him to lay back and think of the least sexual thing as possible. He thinks of his sister. Nurse Heidi snaps on the blue latex gloves and lays a sterile cloth over his legs and belly and then hits his cock with the ice cold blue. She watches, he watches as each fin blue finger slowly wraps around him, then begins to give him the worst hand job in the complete <laughs> A to Z history of hand jobs. <laughs> he sticks his hand in his mouth to stop from screaming. It's the combination of her hand on his thigh, gripping nearly as tight as her grip on his cock, and Mark's own fear of what might happen if he left off the table, which keeps him still, or mostly still. He's twitching with every stroke. The hand that isn't in his mouth is gripping the rail like it's the only thing that keeps him from going under. The nurse is seriously hot, but Mark's not having any fun. She's telling him to relax. It'll be fine. That will seem like forever, but it won't be that long. Her arm is going methodically up and down. She probably has tennis elbow by the time she finishes with him. But she does finish him. His erection goes down. Now, you'd think he'd learn a lesson from all this. Mark leaves the hospital, then he leaves town. He and the high school dream girl call each other every night, and it's hot and heavy, even over the phone. So my buddy thinks he's in love, and he takes some vacation days and meets up with the girl of his adolescent dream again here in town. Mark hooks back up with her, and they're back in the hotel. It's even hotter than the last time, and they're going at it big time. He's singing the praises of her ass, the beauty of her skin, and she stops him leans down over him and says, please. She gives him another Viagra. She tells him it was a fluke, a one-off, a one in a million side effect of the drug, baby. I know, but he does it anyway. Only this time he tries to be a little smarter about things and he only takes half. And hello world, they are off and fucking. On the rug, in the tub, up against the hotel room door after room service delivers pancakes topped with whipped cream. I didn't ask the details about the food. For all his plannings, things in the same way. She's tired long before his engine is done, and he's back in the shower praying to the God that his erection goes away. Finally, he gives in and has her drop him back off at the ER. Once again, he's in a curtained room and of all the fucking nurses that work in the hospital, in walks Nurse Heidi, once again assigned to relieve him. Mark can't even look at her, he's so embarrassed, as he should be. I mean, he's nearly 40. 
Nurse Heidi lays out the sterile cloth again, again with the Arctic glue, again with the death grip on his cock. This time, though, Mark can't shut up. He's nearly crying with apologies to this nurse. God, this isn't what you think, he tells her, panting through the pain. It doesn't take as long this time, and once she done, once she's done, he swears to the doctor, the nurse, and to everyone else with an earshot that he's never, never gonna do this again. Nurse Heidi looks him in the eye and says, you should find a nice girl. I mean, I'd give you my number, but I think you may be too worried for even me. And I'm thinking the guy's in prison. Mark has learned his fucking lesson, people. Of course, later, when he's in Vegas for a convention a month, a month later, alone and wandering the casino after losing money at the table and more at the strip club, he calls and invites the adolescent dream girl to spend his last two days in Las Vegas with him. Mark wants more than sex from this woman. He wants to get to know her. And he wants to think that this intense attraction is more than just unrequited high school hormones. And of course, she shows up. Mark picks her up from the airport, and for two people who've seen each other naked and covered with all kinds of things, they're shy in the bright daylight, and even more so under the LED lights of the strip. She, she suggests they take a drive. They end up out at some construction site, parked behind big concrete pipes, and into the back seat they go. It's like before, they're on each other. Zippers are going down, shirts are coming off, and it's like high school again for Mark in the back of that rental compact car. And when she reaches for her purse, he stops her. Nah, no way, Mark says. Just the thought of having to go through that pain again is killing his erection, you know? The adolescent dream girl sits up, pulls a condom from her purse, slaps it against his chest, She's all sad eyes and an apologetic pout. What guy can resist that? She is sorry. Mark is unbelievably sorry. And there's going to be sex, completely natural. What could go wrong? Then the cop shows up. That's amazing. I, Kent Gowron told me the story of how he met his wife, and I thought I was the only one that had heard that, but apparently not. Uh, next up is John Wegley, the author of Undertow of Small Town Dreams, a collection of stories, and has had over 50 short stories published over the last 13 years, been nominated for a Derringer Award four times, winning once in 2008, and been nominated for a Spine-Tangler Award. As a playwright, John's had over 50 short plays produced by theaters around the world. He's currently has productions coming up in New York and Chicago. The Undertow of Small Town Dreams, a collection of his stories, is available from Twilight Tales Publications and his latest short story collection, A Bucket of Boobs. It's not about anybody. Oh, never mind. Sorry. Bucket of Boobs is now available on Kindle. John Wegley.
Okay, I'm not gonna use the mic because I'm loud. What kind of story is this? This is a loud story. Now, before I read my story, which is very appropriate because it's about bunnies, um, I do like to talk about a group I'm involved with whenever I have a captive audience, and it's it's something that affects everybody in here because we're all readers or writers, and the group is called People for a Dyslexic America, and I'll also translate for any of you that might be dyslexically impaired. We at PETA believe that dyslexia can be a valuable tool in the workplace. Utah ADAP, available at Lutney at Ecclefrat. <laughs> Dyslexic people deserve as much of a chance as so-called normal readers. Sixelsid Elpi Taduk Delicos Lamron Sridare. Is a dog punished for going bark bark? See a god desnep rothniag crab crab? No. On. And dyslexic people shouldn't be punished for doing what they were born to do. Do you know how many dyslexic people are jobless? Tons. Snot. What would your mom and dad think? Todd Lou Roy, mom to dad knit. Don't tell them, oops, I haven't hired a dyslexic person. To not let me spoo, I take a beer at a sexist Say, wow, I have a dyslexic worker. Yes, wow, I even a sexist recrowd. Whether it says a proofreader or a kindergarten teacher, or a a reader for row, and a forgetic record, they'll give you their all. Ilya Evig Uli Ariat Law. As we say at PETA, sa uyasta eda, a drunk have waramatsi a dwarf yadat. A backward tomorrow is a forward today. Nice. <laughs> now this is a short piece called The Resurrection at Hassenpfeffer Field. It takes place in Curry Valley, a made-up town that all of my stories in the undertone small town dreams take place in. So The Resurrection at Hassenpfeffer Field. Why did you go away? I did something bad. The two of us were in the parking lot of the Curry Valley Airport, also known as Hampstead Field, a little airstrip for a little town. The terminal was a small, round building with one set of doors, one ticket counter, and one restaurant, the Hippity Hop Cafe. Outside, there was a parking lot, a hangar, and a runway. If you wanted to book a flight through Curry Valley Air, you could fly to St. Louis. That was it, St. Louis. Otherwise, you could charter a plane. Why did you do something bad? Cheyenne asked. We'd talked about this before, but she always had more questions. I needed money, I said, for me and you and your mom. So you did something bad for money? I, I didn't think it was bad. I thought I could get away with it. Confusion crossed Cheyenne's six-year-old face. But you didn't get away with it. No, I didn't. If you got away with it, would it still have been bad? Yes. I'd been out for almost a month and was trying to connect with her. She'd been born while I was away. Earlier that day, I'd asked her, what would you like more than anything in the world? A bunny. Then we'll go to the pet store and get you a bunny. No, she shook her head, an airport bunny. Despite its modest needs, Hampstead Field took up a fair amount of terrain, and most of it was grassland. Rabbits dominated the area. 
When flying in, you could see rabbit holes dotted all over the property. Around dusk, you could see dozens upon dozens of brown bunnies eating in the vicinity. Because of all the rabbits, people around town called the airport Hassenpepper Field. How do you know about the bunnies at the airport? I asked. Mommy takes me sometimes, Cheyenne said. We visit the bunnies and eat supper and watch all the little planes take off. There are lots of people going away. I locked the car and we walked to the large meadow in front of the terminal. I brought a fishnet that once hung on the wall as a decoration and a cardboard box with holes punched in the lid. We stepped off the tarmac and the grass felt unfamiliar under my feet. Let's go slow, I said. Okay, Cheyenne asked, said. We inched our way towards seven rabbits relaxing in the sunset. By the way, I said, do you know how you catch a unique rabbit? I looked this up on the internet just for the occasion. Cheyenne looked apprehensive. No, unique up on it. She didn't laugh or smile. I wondered if she knew it was a joke. Do you know how you catch a tame rabbit? I tried. She shook her head. Tame way. No reaction. I could hear metal clanging on metal coming from the hangar. We moved on quietly. The rabbits looked content, some of them eating, some just sitting. I noticed one with his ears back, scratching himself with one of his hind feet. He seemed to be where he wanted to be. I didn't like the idea of putting him in a cage, taking him away from his home. But I'd made a promise to my daughter, so I lifted the net, readying it for a throw. Cheyenne tiptoed behind me. As we took our time getting close, before I could even think about throwing the net, the rabbits scattered. One second they were there, the next just empty grass. What happened? Cheyenne asked. I lowered my arms, the net hitting the tops of my feet. I'm sorry, honey. Where did they all go? I'm sorry. I considered trying to find out one of the holes and reach in and grab a rabbit and throw it in the box. But the thought of grabbing onto a wriggling piece of fur and yanking a creature out of its life made my throat feel tight. I don't think we can, I don't think I can, I don't, my daughter smiled at me. It's okay, Daddy, I still got to see them. I've never gotten this close to the bunnies before. Okay, I said. We walked back to the parking lot. When my feet again touched the asphalt, I felt a little more comfortable. I looked at the cars scattered in front of the terminal. There are lots of people going away, I said. Maybe there are lots of people coming back, Cheyenne said. She put her hand in mine and we walked to the car. Thank you. Okay, and once again, uh, Jed Ayers introducing the evening, followed by Nikki Dolson reading her story about Viagra, and John Weigley with his resurrection at Hassan Pepper Field. Yeah, Nikki sure uh, set the, the I think the, the the mood for the evening or the feel for some of the stories that uh, that come up after that. I I don't know about you, but I I feel like I could really identify with that story. <laughs> <laughs> I I don't know what to say to that. Did you- I'm a little uncomfortable talking to you now. I'll let you. I'll let you figure out for yourself what part of the story that I identify with. Oh man! All right. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> but a great story. Uh, just really good stuff and a, and a great way to kick off the reading. And then Weekly, man, that dyslexia thing, you know, I listened to it there and I was trying to like pick out, you know, words and see if he was kind of faking it. And then listening to kind of, you know, just cutting these, uh, cutting these readings down to smaller pieces. I listened some more and I still, I swear he was dead on. And, and all of those were like, you know, either backwards or somehow mixed up words of what he was actually saying. Yeah, that was pretty cool. And it didn't seem overly rehearsed. Um, and he wasn't reading from anything that was just all from memory. So that was pretty cool. And his story I liked a lot too. It was um, one of those where I'm like, I didn't really know where it was going, but I really, I enjoyed it. Yeah, he has a he has a very good delivery too. Like he delivered that story really, really well. He's got a very good um, you know stage persona or whatever you want to call it. For sure. All right, and that uh, is going to wrap it up for part one of the wrong kind of reading. Um, we're going to have this is going to be four parts, as Rob mentioned at the top of the show um, tomorrow night. Uh, show favorite of ours david james keaton we're giving him his own episode um just because we like him that much and his story is so much longer than everybody else's <laughs> yep and coming up after that part three is going to bring you anthony neil smith and kyle minor all wrapped up in one nice package so that's going to be pretty cool and finally we're going to end it off with part four pinkney benedict and seth harwood so you guys have got a a few days of listening to some fantastic readings coming up and Rob tell people how they can be the first on the spot to know when these readings go up. What you're going to want to do is you're going to head over to facebook.com slash booked podcast. There's going to be a little button that says like, if you click that little button, uh, as soon as <laughs> we've talked about this before, the moment when uh, one of our new episodes goes up on our website, it's immediately posted on Facebook. So if you want to know the instant the next reading episode is up, click like on Facebook and you'll know before, like Livia said before, you will know before he does because he basically, I don't know, he's lazy. He doesn't like the show something like that. Pretty much it. And you know what else you can do if you're even lazier than that? You can just go ahead and subscribe on iTunes and then just check your iPod every time you pull it off your computer because our episodes will just show up on there. That's right. It's like magic. Like magic. Oh, because it's an Apple product, I see. Right, yeah. exactly. Uh -huh. It's magic. <laughs> I'm doing magic motions with my hands right now. Ah, so, uh, yeah, check back. We've got a lot more wrong kind of reading. Uh, this was a fantastic reading, and uh, I'm, I'm really glad that we can bring you all these awesome authors. Okay. Until next time, I'm Livia Snedden. And I'm Rob Olson. Keep reading. But the chainsaws mush on to Custer and Columbia. The salty tentacles shrink.